0: Thanks for listening to Chapters. My name's Jim Barrick. I am here today with Jake Auchincloss. Jake is the congressional candidate for the 4th District here in Massachusetts to succeed Congressman Joe Kennedy. It's
1: a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on being a candidate. I appreciate that. We've been in for a few months now and I'm having fun.
0: I first met Jake when you came out to speak uh, to the Franklin Democratic Town Committee. And I must say, I was quite impressed. So let's let's get into a little bit about you, Jake. Uh, you grew up in Newton?
1: Born and educated in Newton Public Schools uh, and born into a family that had deep connections with public service on both my mom's side and my dad's side.
0: Yeah, That's a fascinating story. Talk a little bit about that.
1: On my dad's side, public service had been a tradition. Um, great-grandfather, great-uncle had served in the Roosevelt and Kennedy administrations. And growing up, I had dinner every Sunday with my grandmother, and she used to talk about politics in a way that would almost sound quaint today. She talked about it as something you could be proud of. Right. She thought it was a service, something that was dignified. And, you know, as a seven, eight-year-old boy, having dinner with your grandma, that sticks with you. On my mom's side, a, a different story. Uh, they were nowhere near the halls of power in the 1940s or 50s. Uh, we came from Russian emigres, from the pogroms before World War I. Right. Like many Jews in Massachusetts at that time, set up a garment business in uh, Boston, lived in Chelsea. And my grandfather, Melvin, in 1942, walks into a Marine recruiting office, has no money, no prospects, but a good brain, and tries to enlist. His mother uh, drags him out of the Marine recruiting office, screams at the recruiting sergeant, but he sneaks back in. He manages to enlist. Now, he thinks they're going to send him to the South Pacific. The Marines in 1942 are losing that war. But instead, they send him to college to study engineering. And that turns his life around. He took that chance and turned it into a successful career in science. His right. daughter, my mom, right. has become the CEO of the Dana-Farber. And when I graduated from college in 2010, I thought about these two different threads of public service, a right. tradition on my dad's side and then this, this deep obligation on my mom's side of a country that had given us a chance. And I enlisted in the Marines myself. Uh, this was during the surge in Afghanistan. I commanded a platoon in Helmand Province. We, and what, what year was this? This was 2012 when I was in Afghanistan and then wow. 2014 when I was in Panama.
0: Right. Doing drug interdiction drug there. That's right. Yeah.
1: And and I interrupted. In, in Afghanistan, what did you do? We were patrolling three Taliban-controlled villages in southern Helmand province. And I was proud there to be leading Americans who were putting service before self. Yeah. But I've got to tell you, uh, I also saw up close the futility of that mission. Really? The American people have been misled mm-hmm. about these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and indeed the U.S. Inspector General has said so bluntly, um, those lies and, and, frankly, the misleading of the American public are apparent when you are on the ground there. It is well past time for us to end these reckless wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and to repurpose the $6 trillion that we have spent on those wars back home. For
0: Jake, how important do you think is it for, for our political leaders to have that insight, uh, either through uh, serving themselves or having a family member serve? Is that is that something you think is an important thing?
1: I think it's important for, for two reasons. Yeah. For one, as we've seen over the course of American history, those leaders who have been to war have been the ones who are most reluctant to send other Americans right. to war. That goes from Washington uh, through Eisenhower, uh, through H.W. Bush. We have seen that presidents with visceral experience of warfare have been the ones who are most um, cautious about deploying, whereas, unfortunately, those commanders-in-chief who have no experience, have sometimes been a little bit reckless. right? Um, and then the other reason is that I think public servants who have an experience in uniform have a track record of putting country first that can help with the kind of collaboration and compromise that is the lifeblood of politics. In Congress in the 1970s, three out of four members of Congress were veterans. Today, it's something like one in five That's not the only reason, of course, that Congress has become so partisan and dysfunctional, but I do think it's a part of it.
0: Yeah, a real big part of it. And Jake, uh, first of all, thank you for your service. And and, and, and what a a wonderful story that is, uh, including the story of of the inspiration of your grandmother and and your family on public service. I think too often these days we are wrapped in cynicism, and I include myself as part of that. I'm a recent convert from being a cynic to somebody who actually thinks that uh, politics and government is a good thing. And uh, uh, of course, it all—all—all all, all of it has problems. Uh, we are human beings, and as a result, we create problems. But uh, truly, uh, uh, it's a wonderful thing to want to be a public servant. Beyond that, Jake, uh, you are also a highly educated individual, in that you are both a graduate of Harvard and MIT. And—and that—that. Uh, that education came after your service in the military?
1: Uh, I joined the Marines after graduating from Harvard College, but then after I left the Marines, I went to MIT, to Mm -hmm. business school. And Mm -hmm. frankly, the most important thing that came out of that was I met my wife. Yeah, uh, we're now expecting our first child. Good for in you! April.
0: Congratulations. I Thank was going to say
1: April is the date, right? April is the date. We are uh, ramping up right now. My team and I are working in the nursery, but my wife is about to kick us out. <laughs> <laughs> wonderful. So you have been a city councilor now in Newton for how long? Uh, I'm going into my third term. Was mm-hmm. just reelected in November. That's four and a half years. Wow. And I've become the chair of the Transportation Committee in Newton uh, and have worked hard on issues of transportation as well as housing, education, even immigration.
0: Yeah, and we're certainly going to get into the issues in a minute. But um, in addition to your public service, in addition to your military service, you are also uh, in the business world. You've worked for a tech startup in Liberty Mutual.
1: That's right. Uh, After graduating MIT, I joined a cybersecurity startup that was helping small businesses stay safe from ransomware. And then I moved into Liberty Mutual's innovation lab. And the key focus there was the future of transportation. Liberty Mutual is first and foremost a car insurance company, and they care a lot about how people are going to be moving around in the future, and we help them prepare for risk management in a changing world of transportation. Sure. Jake, let's launch right into some of the key
0: issues. Absolutely. And and high on my radar, and I know yours too, is climate change. My son recently married a young lady from Ecuador, and Mm. this summer we will be going over to celebrate that union in Ecuador and going to the Galapagos Islands. I was horrified to hear from my daughter-in-law That we needed to hurry up and get there because within the next 10 years, they expect that incredible ecosystem, which is the Galapagos Islands, to be so markedly changed that it won't even resemble what it what it does today. That's 10 short years. And I know that this is just one tiny example. I was watching a a show on uh, farming the other night and and looking how how our American farmers worldwide have been impacted by climate change. Um, Jake. What do we do about this enormous problem?
1: Well, climate change is going to steal this planet from the next generation. And I think there's no question that it's an existential issue that we need to address globally, nationally, locally. I'm going to to zoom in on one issue, one way to attack this problem. It's certainly not the only way. Transportation in Massachusetts accounts for 40 percent of the carbon emissions that drive climate change. Mm -hmm. So if we're talking about a Green New Deal, if we're talking about any kind of federal investment, infrastructure to help solve this problem, and we're not talking about transportation, then we are really missing the point, frankly, but we're also missing an opportunity. Because transportation in Massachusetts is, I believe, our single biggest challenge as a state. Mm -hmm. We cannot move people around anymore. I am sure that most of our listeners will agree that traffic has gotten significantly worse in the last five years. That is um, empirically supported just by the statistics on traffic. Greater Boston has become the worst city for traffic in the country, according to U.S. News & World Report. Commute times are getting longer. Asthma rates near highways are spiking. Uh, We're taking time away from people's quality time with their families, and we're locking people out of economic opportunity throughout the district. This represents An opportunity for us to reinvent transportation in Massachusetts. We published as a campaign a comprehensive series of positions on how we can use federal funding to create all-electric regional rail that's reliable and that has 15-minute headways throughout the state, connected bus rapid transit, uh, improved bridges and roads, uh, and better infrastructure for cycling and walking. This is a future that we deserve as residents of Massachusetts, and it's a future that we need as a planet.
0: We sure do. Is there is anything in your I haven't read it. I I apologize for that. But is there anything in that platform that talks about connecting South Station to the North Station via the tunnel?
1: Yes. So uh,
0: because that that to me is just it's preposterous. We can't if you go to South Station, it's a dead end, you know, and and, uh, we can't commute all the way up to Maine or get around.
1: And what it does is it cleaves north and south right. of Massachusetts, right? right? There's a lot of people who work in the north part of Boston and thereby live in the North Shore, and there's a lot of people, vice versa, uh, work in the south part of Boston, thereby live in the south part of, the, of Massachusetts. That's inefficient. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a number of different reasonable proposals for how you can connect north station and south, and south station. Yep. You can do it with a tunnel. You can do it even with improved bus service. I'm receptive to all of them. Sure. The point is significant increased federal and state investment in transportation has to be done with an eye not towards, well, how do we try to move more cars But instead, how do we move more people? And that's really what we care about.
0: Right, exactly. My son's lived in Washington, D.C. now for eight years, and he hasn't had a car, and it's never a problem. And you hear all the time around here, well, why the heck would I... Of course I'm going to drive. I can't I can't rely. We can't out here. Jeff Roy, our state rep, has been working with the MBTA for years to try to get this resolved out here. But it's still a mess. Wait times, parking.
1: Well, the Franklin line is one of the least reliable lines in Massachusetts. Rep Roy has been a significant advocate for his constituents on that issue. And it just goes to show, I mean residents of franklin are right to to feel like they can't rely on that line and that they have to drive because they have responsibilities to their family and to their employers that they have to meet right. and it's unacceptable as a state that we are not providing the infrastructure that, that people can build their lives around
0: mm. what about healthcare one of the frustrations i have with healthcare jake mm-hmm. Is that I hear all the time talk about under the umbrella of healthcare. We need to do something about healthcare, and oftentimes our political leaders are really talking about financing mechanisms for healthcare. Sure. So there's there's two layers, and you come from a, a, a medical family. Both of your parents are physicians, correct? That's right. Yeah. And so you're you're well aware of I'm sure some of the economics with healthcare. Can you unbundle it a little bit for us? Because we really have two systems. We have one is the financing for the healthcare that we receive, and one is the healthcare itself. Uh, and they are inter- interrelated, but they have their own separate issues.
1: I come from a healthcare family. Our, our kitchen table has been the national healthcare debate from patient to provider. We've worked through illness together, including uh, the lonely slide into Alzheimer's, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, this issue I understand um, both personally and also professionally. Um, and I also bring humility to it because healthcare as a field and as an industry is the single most complicated aspect of our economy. And so any politician has to have a level of knowing what you don't know, mm-hmm. and and a willingness uh, to ask experts to help guide the discussion, which I think unfortunately we do not see often enough. Um, Thank you. Here in Massachusetts. That's right. So I'm going to lay out first a couple of principles that I have about healthcare. Uh, the first is healthcare is a human right. It should be universally affordable and accessible. Being ill is a scary thing, and families should be able to work through that without having to worry about going bankrupt because of it. And unfortunately, a huge percentage of cancer patients, for example end up going into debt to treat cancer uh, in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, we can do better than that right Number two, women must control their own reproductive decisions. I'm a supporter of the Roe Act here in Massachusetts. Unfortunately, we're moving backwards on that issue in some parts of the country and we've got to stop that slide. Uh, and then number three, we have to make sure that we're investing in the basic medical research and in the teaching hospitals that advance clinical care here in Massachusetts. We are the world leader in the life sciences here in Massachusetts. And the Massachusetts Fourth especially represents, I think, the single most significant congressional district in terms of health care talent anywhere in the country. So any member of Congress from this district has to be able to speak to the amazing cures that are coming out of Massachusetts and the significance that that has for our economy. I'll just give you one example of that we're about to cure cystic fibrosis here in Massachusetts. That comes from incredible investment and incredible talent working on that issue here. Any federal legislation that might upend the incentives that that create those kind of cures uh, needs to be significantly examined. Yeah. Um, another example, we may well be the first place in the world to ship a coronavirus vaccine right here in Massachusetts.
0: Right, right, right. It's very powerful. You know, and underneath all of that is, let's go to prescription drugs. I mean, right. So many seniors that, that I interact with on on fixed incomes, people have, it's, it's a very scary spot. I come from the insurance business. So, um, you know, in in the insurance business, fortunately, I wasn't on the health insurance side. I say fortunately, because that became such a mess. But uh, just understanding Medicare and Medicaid is, is almost impossible for people these days. They need advocates frankly yes once they understand it sometimes they're faced with prescription drug costs that are that are higher than their food bills yes so we need to do something to control uh, uh, medical costs because you're right it is a right it should not be uh, the select few privileged that have access to the best drugs I think of the HIV uh, drugs which are notoriously expensive I think of drugs that I'm familiar with for things like MS and other things that can cost upward of $150,000 a year um These are, uh, and and then just right on down to blood pressure meds. There needs to be some, in my opinion, some sort of control on the prescription drug end, and that's just one small piece of it. The other thing is, Jake, and this is just from a transparency perspective. I was in recently with my dad who had a heart event at a hospital down in Florida. They said that he didn't meet the criteria for a pacemaker. Now, he's in ICU at this moment, and I'm looking at the doctors saying, What do you mean? What criteria would that be? Basically, when we spent enough time talking, I realized they were talking about insurance criteria. Right. Now, I said, well, what if he wants to write a check? What would that cost us? We don't know part of a longer conversation we can't really have that conversation you'll have to talk there was no way to unbundle it and figure out what the real cost of this was in real time for us to be able to make a decision to get him a pacemaker there's something fundamentally flawed with the system that bills people out at fifteen thousand dollars for an emergency room stay gets reimbursed at seven thousand and the consumers left with no balance bills saying what does this really cost
1: nobody knows what anything costs in the healthcare marketplace and a marketplace where prices are not transparent and where prices are not stable is not a functioning marketplace. Um, We have a system, unfortunately, that prioritizes the billing code and does not prioritize the patient. And uh, the story that you just told, I think, really encapsulates that problem. Just to circle back to prescription drug prices, um, we, we have significant work to do to make sure that drug prices do not become an obstacle for people who need those treatments. The life sciences field needs to schedule prices for the most common and the most vital drugs like insulin so that there's no rent-seeking behavior that drives up the prices there. Uh, And then we need to have value-based pricing for other drugs that may be more rare Mm -hmm. or may have been more costly to develop because uh, most other healthcare fields are required to demonstrate why the value that they're creating justifies the price that they're charging. Mm-hmm. That has not tended to be the case with pharmaceuticals. right? And frankly, as a representative of Massachusetts, I think a new system that does it at the federal level is going to benefit Massachusetts. I just gave two examples of how much value we're creating in the life sciences industry. If we have value-based pricing, I am very confident that here in Massachusetts, we are going to create a lot of value and thereby do just great for um, our employees uh, as well as our patients.
0: And again, you, you started out with the premise and the principle that health care is a right. So if you follow that through, government absolutely has a role to make sure that that right is available to all of us.
1: And it requires building on the Affordable Care Act, <clears throat> uh, expanding um, the individual mandate, introducing a public option, and fixing some of the basic mechanical challenges that are not revolutionary, but that can do a lot of good. For example, the the reinsurance risk pools and some of the premium hikes that exist between individuals and families. There is good basic policy that we can do to build off of um, what I think is a solid start with the ACA that does not require us blowing up the system overnight and starting from scratch. I remind everybody
0: we are speaking with congressional candidate Jake Auchincloss. Jake is running to succeed Joe Kennedy in the 4th Congressional District here in Massachusetts. My name is Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio you can find my podcast also at chaptersradio.com. And we're talking with Jake about some of the important issues that uh, he is hoping to represent us on as he makes his way to Washington. Hopefully um, you are going to be a new dad here shortly. About a month uh, and
1: a half. That's right.
0: I was surprised to see you at our recent uh, opening of the Safe Coalition offices, not because I didn't think that you'd be there for mm-hmm. some, any reason other than you're busy. And Jake,
1: this is hard work campaigning it's hard work it's fun but you have to show up yeah yeah and this goes back to a question that i oftentimes get which is how does a city councilor in newton um relate to a district that is socioeconomically very diverse right median income in brookline for example is about five times what it is in the south coast of the yep. district and the truth is You cannot convince people. You have to show people. That's right. And it's not going to happen, frankly, in one campaign. This is something that is demonstrated over the course of many terms and is demonstrated through showing up. the events that people care about, to having an open door policy for elected officials at the local and state level, for union leaders, for uh, residents when they have challenges. This is something that I've done as a city councilor in Newton, as I've tried to deliver excellent constituent services. This is something that I've done as a Marine platoon commander when I tried to take care of my Marines. And this is something that I would commit to doing uh, across the Massachusetts 4th to ensure that people recognize that I treat this job as a job that is first and foremost about constituent services. You know, Jim McGovern, I do know Jim McGovern. I love Jim McGovern. Jim McGovern. Jim shows up. He shows up and does his job. And he has his priorities
0: straight. He does. And I will. I remember seeing him standing out at a uh, poll in Franklin, sweating. It was a rare hot day, and he's got his sleeves rolled up and his tie hanging down low. And went to shake my hand. And I said, "Sir," I said, "with with all thank you, but with all due respect, what are you here for? You're uncontested." He looked at me. I'm doing my job. That's right. I mean, he was incredulous. And I thought, lesson learned. Thank
1: you. And you don't have to be a member of Congress to be a, a role model for how to do that well. We were speaking briefly about um, Jeff Roy. Yeah. Representative Roy, to me, is a role model for yes. how to be a legislator, number one, how to deliver constituent services, uh, number two, and, and just how to reflect the values and priorities of your constituents in your day-to-day life. Um, he was some, He's somebody I wouldn't just... Um, want to include in conversations about how do I best represent the constituents in this area, but someone I would actually ask for advice.
0: I love hearing that. Uh, As you saw, we awarded, the Safe Coalition awarded Jeff Roy the first annual Jeffrey N. Roy Public Service Award uh, in recognition of all of his support, not only for the coalition, but more broadly for his values and, exa- and his character, for exactly what you just said. And we made it an annual ro- award in his name for those reasons. Um, and that was uh, 14 people, both in and out of his district, uh, that that made that decision. Well, it's and, on my bucket list to win that award. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows, right? Who knows? Um, but we all need those types of role models. Who are some, some of your ro- other role models? I know that you have them in your family, clearly, politically.
1: Politically, that's, a, that's an interesting question. So we've talked about Rep. Roy. Um, I think Carol Fiola in yeah. Fall River yeah. is another example. She is known as one of the hardest working state legislators in the Commonwealth. Yeah, She is responsive to her constituents. She is somebody that works uh, with other elected officials throughout that district just day in, day out on issues that really matter mm-hmm. to her constituents. She's somebody that communicates very clearly. I think extremely highly of... Of Representative Faiola. Um When I look into national politics, um, you know, our congressman on the North Shore, Seth Moulton. Yeah, sure. Has been someone who I think has been effective in helping other veterans get elected to Congress, who has put his political and financial capital to work on behalf of other candidates throughout the country, while staying um, true to his own message of being uh, a more market-oriented Democrat. Another veteran. And another veteran.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And and I'm with you. I I, you have to show people, and you need more than one campaign. It's more than one photo op. That's right. Um, and 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 people people can sniff out authenticity. I think now so more than ever.
1: I a hundred percent agree with you. I think voters are exceptionally good at telling when politicians are telling the truth, when politicians are being true to themselves, mm-hmm. and when politicians are trying to score uh, political points, and What I oftentimes talk about with my Newton Newton constituents, and I publish a a monthly newsletter and I get a lot of feedback on it, is, you know, Jake, I I don't always agree with you on everything. And frankly, no one's ever going to agree with everybody else on 100% of things, but they appreciate that I lay out my thinking about an issue very clearly, Mm -hmm. very straightforward. I explain how I got to a decision, and they know that my principles uh, are pretty consistent. Mm.
0: You know, Jake, I really hesitate to go into this area because I I don't want to get mired in this. I don't see a lot of value in it. But that said, I think it has to be addressed. we got a mess on our hands right now, and um, uh, I don't need to be impartial here. Um, I am no fan of our commander-in-chief. I, uh, it's, as I tell people it, when they say to me, well, I don't talk politics, I say, this, for me, this isn't politics. This is ethics and morality. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard people say, well, you know, what can one person do to fix things and so on and so forth? Uh, what can you add to the conversation on a national level? To bring us back to a place where the Constitution is the document that is uh, um, <laughs> followed, for lack of a better word, that we that we actually respect the Constitution, where civility That's right. is part of uh, of our national discourse, and where people can start to believe that we can de- agree without being disagreeable. And I know it sounds cliche, but to me, it's one of the most important and defining elections that we'll have. Will be. This presidential election coming up.
1: Oh, there's no question. 2020 is the most important election in my lifetime for, sh- for, sh- for certain in my parents' lifetime, I think, also for certain.
0: And your generation is the one that's at stake here. I mean, more so than ever. So what can Jake Auchincloss do to get down there and how anxious are you to get down there and be part of the discourse that brings us back?
1: I have sworn six oaths to the Constitution in my life, three as a Marine officer and three as a city councilor in Newton. And if I am so fortunate as to swear a seventh as a member of Congress, my number one priority on Capitol Hill is to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. We have a president right now who believes that he is above the law. And if he is reelected, which unfortunately is a clear and present possibility, then my number one priority is to ensure that he does not run roughshod over our basic norms and institutions. I think there's two key ways that the House of Representatives can do that, neither of which, in my opinion, has been used uh, uh, intensively enough. The first is oversight. Now, oversight hearings are not always the most glamorous thing, but they are important. And they're important because, one, they let civil servants in places like the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security, who may be getting weaponized for political ends when they're just trying to do their job. Mm -hmm. They let them know that if you're going to do the right thing, we're going to have your back. Mm -hmm. And if you're going to do the wrong thing, you're going to get a subpoena and you're going to come testify about why. And that will help depoliticize the civil service. Here you go. Number two, it uncovers evidence of wrongdoing that can be used uh, in court decisions. Mm -hmm. We saw this with the census case in the Supreme Court where John Roberts was swayed by evidence that was uncovered during oversight hearings. that is critical because this administration, although it has no respect for the rule of law, also happens to be very sloppy in how they, in how they break the law okay. and they leave a paper trail behind. That can be surfaced with oversight. Number two big bucket is the power of the purse. The Constitution is quite clear. The United States House of Representatives has the power of appropriations. And traditionally, it has been agreed that once legislation is passed, it gets funded. We are no longer in normal times. And it may be that for particularly egregious examples like the border wall or like the attack on immigrants, uh, Congress may need to defund presidential priorities and to get its message across. Uh, and that is something that I would take the lead on because some values need to be uh, defended against uh, even the basic, the basic machinations of government. Um, the final thing I'll say on this point of appropriations is the authorization for the use of military force. This is the post 9-11 document that allows the president to wage war overseas pretty much indiscriminately. Right. That document has now expired in its utility. We've spent 19 years and $6 trillion overseas. Uh, we've accomplished nothing in mm-hmm. Afghanistan and Iraq. It is time to end that unilateral authority that we give the president, much more narrowly scope the uh, ability to wage war, which rightfully belongs with Congress and to bring back that money to the United States and to invest in education and infrastructure here.
0: I want to remind everyone we are speaking with Jake Auchincloss, who is a candidate for Congress, running in the 4th District to succeed Joe Kennedy. My name's Jim Derrick. This is Chapters Radio. You can find my podcast at chaptersradio.com. Jake, uh, as a veteran yourself, is it difficult for you personally when you see veterans groups for Donald Trump
1: so I always am uncomfortable with the politicization of the uniform I heard you one of the most important norms in American political life is that the military is apolitical it's one of my favorite things about America and we've seen in other countries where that doesn't happen it very quickly goes wrong so I never like to see the uniform be politicized Um, I didn't know if the Marines in my platoon were Republicans or Democrats honestly didn't know didn't care didn't matter And the military needs to remain above politics uh, or probably perhaps better put below politics in the sense that it takes orders from whomever is elected. Um, So I wouldn't want to see veterans groups or or active duty members of the military ever explicitly using the uniform, frankly, in favor of any one candidate or another. Um, Having said that, veterans as individuals have a political right to campaign for whomever they choose. And I certainly would not ever... Um, take away someone's right to campaign for their chosen candidate.
0: Here's what bothers me. You have a commander-in-chief who is more than willing to tell um, 60 or more servicemen and women that they're experiencing headaches when they have traumatic brain injuries after an attack, uh, after the missiles landed, that... uh, Iran uh, fired. He has, um, I have a dear, dear friend who just retired 35 year and a fellow Marine retired uh, 35 year career in the CIA who left uh, and says morale. He's just never seen anything like it. It is beyond anything he could have. Well, the president
1: says that they're liars and incompetent. Of course, morale is
0: low. Of course. But we have people being dismissed, uh, military leaders and others from from cabinet posts, from from um, uh, important positions that, that could be really valuable to the president now for uh, for not being loyal this duty of loyalty that seems to be so high so it's a it's a very very dangerous environment that we're in right now and it bothers me when i see military people uh politicized frankly and and standing up for this type of thing which to me is is one step or one foot away if not already there to authoritarian
1: uh rule well i think that's Exactly right. We have, of course, seen the politicization of national security with the Ukraine scandal. Um, we've also seen it in ways that are probably not immediately obvious to the American people, but might become a crisis. For example, the pandemic preparedness unit of the National yes. Security Council was defunded. Well, now we are faced with a pandemic and sure it would have been nice to have some expertise um, and some apolitical uh, civil servants who are experts in pandemic preparedness uh, at the highest levels of government to help us be ready. And I think as we've seen, we're not ready.
0: Nope. Nope. We're com- caught completely flat footed and unprepared. But um, anyway, that, that's, that's, that's hot on my mind. And, and, you know, we, and, and words do matter. And, and so for anybody that says, well, you can't change anything. No, the words matter. It matters what you think when you get down there. It matters that you take a stand. Mitt Romney, one guy, um one guy, it does matter what he said it when, may he, well when be, he voted to impeach.
1: It may well be what he's most remembered convict. for.
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it does matter. So moving on, immigration is really hot on my mind. Um, as I mentioned, my daughter-in-law, I love her to death. She has just gotten her green card. Uh, she's so proud to be uh, a candidate for citizenship here. Um, but we have treated our immigrants terribly over the past uh, four years. I will... I sent to her one of Ronald Reagan's final speeches, and you see you're smiling. It's about a four minute 26 seconds speech. You're familiar with it. one of the great speeches of American political history. Now, if you sent that to the average person who's hammering away on Facebook about sanctuary cities and we need to keep you know uh, the, the illegals out, and we're able to change the voice on that. And tell, ask them, was that a Republican or a Democrat? They couldn't. There's, there's no way was they pick era. Ronald Reagan out of a right. It was a different era. So my question to you: Where do you stand on immigration? Let's start with the border wall and uh, work our way down from there,
1: or up. The border wall is a red meat response to a fictitious crisis. Right. Uh, the president should not have been allowed to direct emergency funding to its construction. It is not necessary. uh, And it is a blatantly political ploy to rile up his base when, in fact, uh, we need more immigration as a country. Now, Mm -hmm. that's not to say that we need open borders. Of course, we need to have border security. But uh, we need more high-skilled immigration. We need more low-skilled immigration. And when the abuses and the shameful episodes of this administration are tallied by historians, I think it's likely that his treatment of immigrants will be number one because it is so contrary to the Central American idea that the circumstances of your birth should not determine the outcome of your life. Somebody walks from Honduras across Mexico to get to Texas, that sounds like a great potential American and a great potential employee. And we should be welcoming them. And like my grandfather at the age of 17 with a good brain but no money, we should be thinking about investing in them.
0: This environment that the and I I heartily agree with what you just said and thank you for those words. Um, This environment that we uh, has been created over the past four years has given a permission structure for people to exercise their um, racist views uh, and their and their racist voices and and it has elevated. uh, It goes beyond Charlotte. It goes. It, it, it works its way even to our nation's capital, where my daughter-in-law struggles to speak Spanish openly because she's afraid of being attacked. And this is new. She's been here for 10 years. So this is new. Um, like I said, words matter. And we have to create an environment which is both welcoming, which is what how we were founded. Uh, and so it's nothing radically uh, different. But let's talk a little bit about sanctuary cities. It's a, It's a frequent lightning rod for people to get their ire up and say, we can't become a sanctuary city. Why not? Or a sanctuary state, for that matter. Why not?
1: I think the way to address this controversy is at the root level. Um, the advent of sanctuary cities and now the sanctuary state legislation is a response to dysfunctional federal policy. <laughs> Immigration is really a federal issue at its core it needs to be addressed nationally and that means finding a path to citizenship for the 12 13 million people who are who are here without documentation that means ensuring that the dreamers are able to build lives here that are economically and socially successful Uh, and that means that ensuring that we do not use local law enforcement as proxy arms of immigration and customs enforcement That is not the right use of local public safety arms. And frankly, it makes those communities less safe. Mm -hmm. So we need to find a route to immigration reform and compromise at the national level. I am not as despairing of the possibility of that as some others may be. It wasn't so long ago when it was George W. Bush, actually, who proposed um, comprehensive immigration reform. That's right. Didn't get done, partly because of or mostly because of his base, um, but doesn't mean it can't get done.
0: Exactly right. Um, And and if you go to Pew Research, is one place that I've been, and look at the uh, border crossing uh, information, the point I'm driving at is there's so much misinformation around this issue right now that it's mind numbing. Just go to Pew Research, take the time to read uh, what has historically happened? Look at the fact that border crossings during the Obama administration had hit something like a 26-year low or maybe more. Uh, look at some of the facts. And as Jake just mentioned, this red meat idea, I love that. Uh, the red meat idea of a border wall being the essential need and first and foremost need that we have here is is laughable if it weren't so harmful to so many. And... Um, we need you know, we need clear thinking. We need we need people that are willing to speak the truth. I, and again, I hesitate to ask this question, but I'm asking it anyway, because it gets into this mire and it's really unanswerable. Let me give it a shot. There's a lot of Republicans, I guess, and, and some Democrats um, that occupy uh, the House of Representatives and the Senate that seem to be completely snowed. Under, if you will, for lack of a better word, their intellect seems to have vacated. They seem to be absolutely unable to speak the truth, and and it's not just a few; it's the vast majority. It's the vast majority. Joe Kennedy had a um, uh, had a forum at the uh, Kennedy Library where he brought uh, two Democrats and two Republicans in uh, colleagues of his to talk uh, about civility in politics. This was a, about a year ago, and Rep. Roy took me. And I'm listening to these otherwise intelligent people defend this Commander-in-Chief by saying, basically, you don't understand what it's like to go back to a district that support 98% of which supports this administration and tried to work in that environment, basically asking for permission.
1: Representatives in Congress do not swear an oath to be popular. They do not swear an oath to the president. They swear an oath to the Constitution of the United States. You had mentioned otherwise smart people. We're not lacking for intelligent people in Washington, D.C. We're not lacking for clever ideas in Washington, D.C. We're lacking for political courage in Washington, D.C. You just said
0: in 30 seconds what I was trying to say for four minutes. Um, Beautifully put, that's exactly where I was headed with that. So it's political courage. It's do I put the interests of the greater body that I serve above my own. I want to pause to remind everybody we are speaking with Democrat for Congress, Jake Auchincloss. He is running in the fourth district here in Massachusetts to succeed Joe Kennedy. My name's Jim Derrick. This is chapters radio. You can find my podcast at chaptersradio.com. radio.com. Uh, Jake, what other issues that you find? I mean, we've, we've covered immigration. We've covered the environment. Um, what about taxes? I mean, what, what, do you, what do you think we need to do federally as far as taxes and our tax
1: rates or more our taxing system? Well, one, we need to ensure that special interests do not write our tax code. We tried to get tax reform. I say we kind of broadly as Americans tried to get tax reform done a few years ago. And you know who got it halted in its tracks was TurboTax. Mm. That is unacceptable. It's unbelievable. TurboTax does not get to write our tax code. Americans get to write their tax code. The Trump tax cuts were a sugar high for the economy. They helped big companies. They did not help the middle class. We've got to rescind those tax cuts and make sure that we are helping out working class and middle class Americans, giving them uh, the investment that they need in education and giving them the infrastructure spending that they need to be able to support their transportation um, and energy needs. We also need to ensure that we have a progressive tax code in place. And I think the most important way we can do that is with an estate tax. Uh, Really? If you make $100 million, I think that's great. And you probably created a lot of jobs along the way and a lot of value along the way. But you can't just give $100 million directly to your kids. I think you got to be able to pay it forward and make sure that other kids who are not as fortunate as yours get a good strong start in life as well. And an estate tax helps to make sure that that's the case.
0: I always thought that as a, as a regressive t- tax because you've been taxed on the money as you've earned it and then you're taxed again. And I know a lot of people in Martha's Vineyard, as an example, who own acres and acres of land that have been in the family for years and they're not rich except on paper with their real estate. And, they're per- and because of estate taxes, they have trouble transferring that and a lot of land's lost.
1: Well, re- no it's it's a progressive tax in the in the definitional sense that it tends to tax those who are wealthier more than those who are poorer. okay, okay. Um, a regressive tax would be something like a you know a, a food tax um in, in that it would impact those with less income more than those with with more um, so an estate tax is, a, is an inherently progressive tax. it is a politically challenging one to be right. candid right uh, because of exactly what you just described yeah. uh, but paper wealth. Is still wealth I mean that can still be liquidated Mm -hmm. and passing it on to your kids is a perfectly appropriate thing to do Um, but it is also important to recognize that there are a lot of people and I disproportionately um, uh, African American and Latino people who do not have inherited family wealth Mm -hmm. who have been carved out of the ability for families to amass wealth in American history because of redlining and other policies and and a, a progressive estate tax helps to invest in those kids, as well as ensuring that you're able to support your own kids, too, if you've been successful.
0: Thank you for that. Uh, Two things burning on my mind. One, mental health parity um, and substance abuse. I'll put them, they're both one and the same. We're in a system right now uh, that the Senate here in Massachusetts just passed the uh, ABC mental health uh, bill, which is trying to level the playing field and give uh, guarantee access to people. But the fact of the matter is we have uh, insurance companies who have been allowed to skate around this law. That's the best way I can describe it For, for forever. Um, I know from personal experience, having tried to access the mental health system on behalf of my family members, uh, that that access is limited at best, that reimbursement is limited at best, and that, again, it's a situation, I'll take addiction treatment, uh, which is now classified by the National Institute of Health as a mental illness, addiction, that is. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a, if you have, the haves can get access to the best treatments, the have-nots are remanded to state facilities at best. What can we do to clean up this situation that um, has been plaguing us for years, that is access, equal access to mental health and addiction services?
1: Well, I think and this is starting to get better, but unfortunately, it is still too prevalent in the basic conditions of of federal programs, which is we need to treat addiction as a disease. And that means um, you require all federally funded insurance policies like Medicare and Medicaid to provide parity when it comes to mental health and addiction treatment. Uh, Then there's more tactile things that we can do, tactical, excuse me, things that we can do at the federal level to help with addiction. Um, The Prescription Drug Monitoring Program is a really important way to do that. That basically um, allows for national tracking of the uh, prescribing and the supply chains behind prescription drugs, especially, of course, the ones that are highly addictive, and making sure that physicians who are prescribing them understand what they are prescribing, and breaking the link between the pharmaceutical companies that have an incentive to prescribe more, and the physicians who are their front-line, uh, basically salespeople.
0: Of course, we have that here in Massachusetts. the The problem has been that there's no teeth in it, uh, that it's been voluntary, and you know we've got to put teeth in it. There has to be political courage in these areas to get to, to overcome these lobbying groups and everything else. And from an insurance standpoint, um, you can you can give parity of coverage, but then you can limit. Uh, who's in network. So I'll give you an example. I had a loved one who needed uh, substance abuse treatment and was horrified to find out that a national insurer, uh, a big one that we'd all recognize with a big building, had two providers in network. And those two providers, one of them was graded like a one star, and they were barely even in the business anymore, and the other one had no beds. So we were left on on basically what amounted to be a negotiated private pay. So, I mean, there's all kinds of ways around this, and it's a a maze. I think we just need some political courage to stand up against these lobbying groups to get through this, because
1: it's law. I agree, and I also want to circle back to what we had talked about, about uh, the SAFE coalition and about the Opioid yep. Resource Recovery Center. There is so much incredible work being done at the state and local level by committed volunteers, by civil society, representing the best of the American tradition, which is um, neighbors helping neighbors. And, um, you know, going to that opening and hearing from you and hearing from Jen and hearing from Rep Roy really brought home to me how how capable and how ready communities are to solve problems that they have. And they are looking for partnership from the federal government. They are looking for basic support. They're not necessarily looking for the federal government to solve every single problem that they have. And one of the most important things that a member of Congress can do is to be a partner, to be a facilitator, to be an advocate, to be a champion at times. Um, But you don't always have to show up and say, here's what we're going to do. A lot of times other people have better ideas than you who have been living it day in, day out. You are so right.
0: Uh, it A good example is the area of grants. So there's a lot of federal grants available to, for people like us. And some of them, frankly, have guardrails that are outdated. That's right. Uh, they have lanes that are outdated. So you've got to run a very narrow r- r- lane. Uh, last thing I'm going to, well, I should ask your position on legalization of marijuana.
1: So I was in favor of decriminalizing marijuana. I do not think that we need to be arresting people for smoking a joint. And I think those uh, that criminal enforcement was disproportionately affecting um, black and brown communities. I had concerns when we were talking about the retail sales of marijuana for two reasons. One, we really have not studied the public health consequences of what happens when you take the THC content from about 10% in illicit marijuana to about 50 to 70% in industrial THC, which is what the big companies are making now. Um, we also didn't really understand the local government uh, mechanics for how they were going to be issuing those host community agreements and the potential for corruption. Now, unfortunately, both of those concerns have been, have been realized. We have seen some examples of corruption throughout the state. We have seen some mismanagement of these HCAs, and we've also seen public health fallout. Uh, Juul and the e-cigarette industry is quite clearly trying to move into commercial THC. They have. Um, we have seen that the investor club behind these businesses are clearly trying to roll them up into a the conglomerates we're seeing the same kind of advertising that big tobacco used um, I want to see federal research on the effects of THC use on cognitive development for young kids I think that it should certainly not be a schedule uh, a, a scheduled drug where you're you're going to, to jail under federal um, laws for for smoking marijuana but that, that is not the same thing as saying well everybody should use it then because it, it has property it has properties that can be damaging
0: so I can put you down as somebody who would, be in favor of not legalizing on a broad basis and and looking for more research before making any of those types of decisions. And I, is that what I heard from you?
1: I think the federal government needs to be investing in research on the effects of THC. I think the federal government should get out of the business of criminalizing marijuana. I think that's really a state level issue.
0: I, I refer everybody to smart approach on Marijuana, S-A-M, SAM, out of Washington, D.C., run by Kevin Sabet and Patrick Kennedy, a wonderful organization of which I'm a part. Uh, There's plenty of research on that website uh, that talks about the link between, and, and they're now moving towards causal, link between uh, psychosis and underage uh, marijuana use. So there's a lot of red flags out there. Anecdotally, I see it all the time. Police departments report it all the time, particularly with high concentrate THC. I'm very pleased to hear your position. Jake, what do you like to do when you're not running for Congress and not having a baby?
1: (laughs) Jim, I'll be honest. Are you a sports fan? I'm a big sports fan. Red Sox, Bruins, Pats. um, Like most residents of Massachusetts, I am watching what Tom Brady is doing these days, and I am hoping against hope that he ends his career in a Patriots uniform. Right. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't have much of a social life these days. Right. uh, I can see that, yeah. Getting ready for a kid and running for Congress. Right. Um, I've always been a big big reader of American history. Mm Mm-hmm. So in the in the few minutes I have, in the evenings, I am reading some Civil War fiction. Cool. <laughs> uh, you've been to Gettysburg? you have been, been to Gettysburg and to... Antietam. Uh, I've toured a bunch of uh, both Revolutionary War and Civil War battlefields. My dad, when we were growing up, used to take us on RV trips across the country to national parks and battlefields. And that, that sticks with me. Uh, prediction on the
0: Red Sox this year? I think it's going to be a tough season. It's going to be a real tough <laughs> season.
1: <No. laughs> I, I think the Red Sox, have they've been a, really a terrific franchise over the last... Um, Fifteen years, yeah. and I, th- I
0: think we're going to. I think we're going to get back in a groove. You heard it here. This has been Jake Auchincloss, candidate for Congress in the fourth district here in Massachusetts, to succeed Joe Kennedy. Jake, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate you having me. So, for my guest, Jake Auchincloss, my name's Jim Derrick. Saying thanks for listening to Chapters, and I'll see you next week.